0: I trust the Lord would now bless us as we consider his word this morning. It's a wonderful little story that you're well familiar with, and yet I trust God might speak to us afresh. At least that's what we can pray for this morning as we begin in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Our Father, we're thankful now that we can consider your word. We trust that you would bless us through it and in it, and speak speak to us, Father. We long to hear from you as we consider this wonderful story of the birth of our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, about 200 years ago, the year 1809, the world's attention was focused on one man, the French Emperor Napoleon. He had begun to wage his war to expand French territory by conquering Austria, capturing all of the world's attention. The last place anyone would focus on would be the rural countryside of Kentucky. And yet in that same year, 1809, a poor, illiterate, and wandering laborer, laborer named Thomas and his wife had a baby. They named him Abraham. He would go on to change the world, Abraham Lincoln. Who, who cared about that birth? I mean, the world was in the hands of a French dictator. And yet in that same year, this, a new one would emerge and leave a profound impact. Well, 2,000 years ago, the world's attention once again was fixated on one man. His name was Gaius Octavian as he defeated Antony in Cleopatra and became the Emperor of Rome. After succeeding his uncle, Julius Caesar, for the first time in 400 years, the Roman Senate voted to give Caesar Octavian the title Augustus, which means revered or holy one, up to that point, a title only reserved for the gods. And so Gaius Octavian, or as we know him as Caesar Augustus, became the first Caesar to receive worship as a son of God. He was perhaps Rome's greatest ruler. It has been said of him, when, when he took over Rome, it was made of bricks. When he died, Rome was made of marble. He was so revered that there, uh, an inscription remains in the Roman city of Halicarnassus, reading Caesar Augustus, savior of the world. If you were alive 2,000 years ago, your focus would be on Rome and its ruler. The last place you would have thought to look would be on the rural countryside of Bethlehem where a poor laborer named Joseph and his wife had a baby. They named him Jesus. So you have two men, Caesar Augustus and Jesus, both claiming to be the Son of God, both claiming to be the Savior of the world. Who would you believe? Which Savior would you trust? This morning and next week, God willing, I hope to explore this little passage in Matthew chapter 1 with you as we consider the birth of the Lord Jesus. In particular, I want to ask two questions over those two Sundays. Who is he and what has he done? In fact, Matthew 1, I think, is a great guide because you know in this little passage, he's given two names, isn't he? Verse 21, you read, you shall call his name Jesus, In verse 23 you read, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus describes his work or his purpose. Emmanuel describes his nature or his identity. Of course, this all begins there in verse 18, doesn't it? When we read, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When, Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And here you have this remarkable young Jewish woman named Mary introduced to us. It has a profound trust in God, as you know. Even, I think, Butch read for us this morning, didn't he, Luke's account when the angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be with child from the Lord. And after getting some clarity, Mary responds by by saying, may it be to me according to your word. And I think she is, therefore, just a wonderful encouragement to us to trust in the Lord when his ways are inscrutable and uncertain and even difficult, as was the case for Mary, wasn't it? For she, as you see there in verse 18, don't you? This this is all happening when she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. So you can imagine, perhaps, that when Mary is having this conversation with the angel, and she says, concludes, okay, I am the Lord's handmaiden, right? I submit to your will. But if it's not too much trouble, do you mind telling my, my betrothed, right? You mind going and telling Joseph. It'll be better coming from you after all. Right? He is she is, of course, betrothed to this man. You see that there in verse 18. Usually in a period of betrothal in this culture, the girl would most likely be a teenager. The man somewhat older, certainly in his 20s, so that he would be able to provide for her. The year before marriage, unlike our engagement, was a betrothal. That is, the groom would pay a bride price to the bride's family. The marriage would then be agreed upon. And, and, and the, the husband then would go back to his home. He's living independent while the wife remains with her family. And he would prepare a home for her. Right? And he would begin to prepare this place, spend that year to do so. And at the end of the year, this would be a grand processional. This, this bride from her, her father's home would process to her husband's home where there would be a public wedding uh, ceremony as the whole community gathers to watch them exchange vows and enter into this covenant. And then the, the groom would welcome the bride into her home where they would, of course, become flesh, one flesh for the first time. What makes all this very difficult is Mary is pregnant, as you know. In fact, you notice the language there in verse 18. She's found to be with child. Well, how, how, how do people find this out? Well, pregnancies tend to reveal themselves, don't they? So it's apparent to all, isn't it, that Mary has committed sexual sin. And at worst, the baby is not Joseph's. Now, I think we probably are safe to assume, though we're not told, and I'm speculating here, that since the angel didn't initially go explain things to Joseph, Mary must have done her best, right? She must have come to her betrothed and said, listen, I have, I have some news for you. I'm pregnant, but, but it's not what you think. I'm, I'm still a virgin, and an angel came and told me that I'm going to bear the Son of God. Right? That must have been an incredibly painful conversation, don't you think? Very difficult for Mary, but of course Matthew's focus here is on Joseph, isn't it? So just think about Joseph's uh, position for a moment. What, what, what would you feel if you were walking his path? Humiliated? Angry? Sad? Would you believe her? Did Joseph believe her? After all, this is an amazing story, isn't it? It seems a little too Amazing. He must have thought that she was either crazy or immoral or both. As you see there in verse 19, he comes to a conclusion, doesn't he? And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You've broken our betrothal, Mary. You've been with another man. It's clear. You've made your choice. It was not me. So be it. He would divorce her. Normally, this would happen at the city gate, a very public event which would bring shame as the divorce would be done in front of the city elders. This, I I have read, would make a public divorce like this, would probably make any future marriage for Mary impossible. She'd be shunned and perhaps therefore live a life of poverty and begging. Joseph, as you notice, comes off very well here, doesn't he? He's not not a self-righteous man. He's not a punitive man. In fact, one author imagines as he's deliberating on one shoulder, he has God's righteous law whispering in his ear, you need to expose her. On the other shoulder, he has God's compassion whispering in his ear that you, you, need, to, you need to care for this woman. And, and no, it's not an angel and a, and a devil. It's two angels, if you will, wrestling with his heart as to what he wants to do. And so he decides the best uh, course forward is to divorce her discreetly. Which is perhaps why Matthew calls him a just man, a merciful man. One pastor describes him this way. He is moral without being moralistic. I think a wonderful standard for us to seek after. It's not hard, I trust, to imagine the pain that they must have brought. I don't think we're pressing things too far to suggest that Joseph loved Mary. Maybe when he lay in bed at night and considered these things, he... Did so with a broken heart. Perhaps it was when he was laying down in sorrow one night that he begins to dream. And God sends away these imaginary angels on his shoulders and sends him a real one, as you see in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel shows up and gives a standard angelic greeting, do not fear, but not not normally they're saying, don't fear me. But look what he says, don't fear what? Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Things are not as they seem to be, for the child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. As Joseph begins to hear of the mysteries of the incarnation, she's not wayward, she's not immoral, she's pure and faithful just as you hoped. And so what does he do? Well, look what he does when he wakes up. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. You see what he does? He marries Mary. This man living in faith, listening to God, putting away his fears, recognizing his reputation will be uh, scandalized and obeying God. Certainly the community would conclude, just as Joseph had originally concluded that this child is a sign of immorality, therefore an occasion of shame, therefore an occasion of shunning in a very traditional religious culture. And Joseph just decides, we're just going to have to live with the shame. We're just going to have to live with the gossip. We're just going to have to live with the scandal. And I wonder if there's something for us to learn here, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That there might be, this might be true for us too. When, when we are willing to follow Jesus, when we're willing to believe what Jesus has to say about who he is and how to be saved, if we're willing to believe what the Bible says about that God is actually the creator of this world and it's not a, 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 the outcome of a time and chance, when we take a stand for Jesus in a world that increasingly has no place for him, Well, you too will will experience a bit of that shunning and shame. We put our reputation at stake. And yet Joseph does so anyways, doesn't he? You note that little um, comment there in verse 25, he didn't know Mary until the child was born. Of course, implying that after the child was born, he knew her, which is why we read in Luke's gospel that Jesus has four brothers and at least two sisters. I bring this up because I, I, there's, you know, this time of year, there's a great deal of embellishment about Mary, and so let's just be clear that, that Mary did not remain a virgin, as some have taught in contradiction to Scripture. And the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, of Mary not only is wrong, not only is contrary to the Bible, it's actually harmful, I think. It actually teaches that there's something wrong with marital intimacy, which clearly is not, since it is God's gift. It's also interesting, you'll note that God let Joseph struggle with this before he revealed his will. Right, he, 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 God didn't immediately come to Joseph and this angel and say, this, hey, let me explain to you what's going on. Joseph had to wrestle with it, and he reached this conclusion. Here's what I have to do. I have to divorce her. And it's only once he reaches that conclusion that the angel comes and explains how things are. And I, I think that's true for us. Doesn't God often do this to you? He brings you in a place of uncertainty, brings you in a place of pain, brings you in a place of difficulty, and you do your best. You receive counsel. You pray. You search the word, and you think, okay, God, I guess I'll go this way way, and and all of a sudden God says, no, no, we're going this way, right? And Joseph is this powerful example that we're just walking step by step with God as the angel finally comes and reveals and says, listen, you need to marry Mary. Take her as your wife. But there's another reason the angel comes, isn't there? Not just to validate Mary's story and ensure they're wed. He comes to name the child. As you see in verse 21, she will bear a son, Jesus, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this name, Jesus, answers the question why he came. What is his work? My friends, he, he came to save. Why did Jesus come? He came to save. You, you shall call his name Jesus, he says. Now, Joseph is, Mary's told us the same thing. Luke 1 verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So both are told, mom and dad, independent of each other, that the child's name is Jesus. But Joseph, unlike Mary, gets an explanation. You see, the angel goes on and tells him why. He says, for he will save. Now, this is important because Jesus is one of the most common names at this period amongst the Hebrew people. It's the Greek version of Joshua. It would be like being named Michael or Bob, okay? Now, it would be hard to worship anyone named Bob. No offense to the Bobs out there, but it was a very, very common name. It's nothing special about the name. I mean, many names could have been chosen. He could have named him Lord or, or Shepherd or Creator or Master or Judge. He could have added like an adjective to his name. He's the, the Great or the Conqueror or the Bold, he could have named him Aaron, which means loftly, lofty, or Jeremiah, which means Yahweh exalts, or Malachi, my messenger. He could have named him Gideon, the one who cuts down, or Ezekiel, God strengthens, or Josiah, Yahweh heals. But no, he was given the name Jesus, Jesus. In the Greek, it's pronounced Yesus, Yesus. It's a compound word. You hear the ye at the beginning. It's just shorthand for the name of God, Yahweh. We see this all throughout Jewish names. So Jeremiah, You hear the ya at the end. Josiah, Jacob, the Ja at the and to begin with. Jerusalem, Elijah, and on and on. You hear it all the time. It's the name of God, Yahweh. And Zeus is just the the word for saves. So Jesus means Yahweh saves or God saves, which is why Mary, when 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 she begins to sing her song, she says, "My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in." God, my Savior. Or it's why when the angels show up, as we have already heard, they declare, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. You see, God is a Savior. God has always been a Savior. He's always saved his people. He's saving them out of Egypt. He's saving them through the wanderings in the wilderness. He's constantly saving them from their enemies. And so the angel comes and says, listen, Joseph, you're gonna name Jesus for he's gonna save. Joseph doesn't say, well, what do you you mean? What do you mean save? Why do we need a savior? Right? He understood, as any Jew would have understood, of course, God is a savior. So please understand the Christmas story is about the birth of a baby, as we have already heard from the choir, who grows up to be what? Well, not, not a great moral teacher, though he was one. Not a paragon of righteousness, though he was one. Not someone who gives us philosophy on life or some tips on how to succeed or teaches you how to feel good about yourself and all the rest. No, the Christmas story is about the birth of a baby who came to be a Savior. It's the birth of a Savior. And I think this is incredibly important because there's a lot of people who have an attachment to Jesus, especially this time of year, but they don't think of him as a Savior. They think of them as maybe a, a helper, right? So, a helper, someone who gives you a push. Someone who gives you a little direction, a little assurance. No, don't do it like this. Do it like this over here. Someone, so Someone who comes and helps you. And that, that's what they think of Jesus. Jesus, a helper. My, uh, during Thanksgiving last month, my wife uh, decided to go to California and uh, leave me. She took a couple kids, thank you, but she left me home with six, okay? And, um... <laughs> Let's just say I needed a helper, okay? And, and in particular, my parents, God bless them, they came up for Thanksgiving, they helped, helped with the dinner, but we had so much food left over on Friday, we're doing Thanksgiving 2.0. We're just going at it again. And so preparing the meal was, was my responsibility. Um, now I, find, I, I listen. This may come as a surprise to you, but I'm not very handy around the kitchen. Okay, um, and I, I'm not even sure how I, I find the ovens very confusing. You got bake and broil, and you got different shelving units and temperatures. I was once electrocuted by an oven. I, I don't. I, I have trouble with ovens. You can't brew coffee in an oven, I don't think. And if you can, someone let me know. But I, so I, I, I listen. I'm trying to make this whole spread of food. And I'm calling my wife a dozen times. I mean, I put the, this is not even embellishment. Sometimes I embellish, believe it or not. But I actually, I put the turkey in the oven. I took it out a half an hour later. It's room temperature. I have no idea what's going on. I call my wife. She says, have you turned the oven on? I said, well, there's an on-off switch. I mean, what's going on? How do you, how does this work? So listen, I, I needed a helper. I didn't need a savior. Now my kids, they, who are eating the meal, they may have needed a savior, okay? But I, I, needed, I needed help, right? And that, that's, that's how people look at Jesus. They think, well, Jesus come to help. No, well, Jesus doesn't mean Yahweh helps. Yahweh saves. What's confusing is all the other religions say, well, they, they come and they say, okay, listen, I'm gonna instruct you on how to live. This is how you live. They, they, all the religious founders, they all do this. This is what you do. I'm going to show you you how to get to God. I'm going to show you the rituals you need to do. I'm going to lay it out for you. And we even have this ridiculous saying that God helps those who help themselves. That's not Christianity. It's not found in the Bible. Jesus says, I'm not here to show you how to live. I'm not even here to help you achieve salvation. I'm, I'm not here as a helper. I'm here as a savior. I'm here to save you. And the problem with that is it implies something about you, doesn't it? It implies you're incapable. You don't save someone who needs help, you don't give CPR to someone who needs directions, right? To be saved means to be totally incapable, which is why people want to hang on to Jesus and change what he did, and say, so, well, Jesus is my helper. Jesus is my co-pilot, right? He's there to point out whether well, there's a tree there, or whatever co-pilots do, right? He's there to kind of give us his direction. He, he's not there to, to actually fly the plane, and Jesus says, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to save. You see, the problem with this whole Jesus helper model is, is I've read the Bible, and you don't find it anywhere. It's not in Scripture, for example, First Timothy, we put our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, namely those who believe. In John, we read, we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. First John, we, he, we read, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The whole story of the Bible is the story of salvation that God alone provides. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save. Well, that, of course, raises the question, save from what? From what are we saved? Well, the angel tells us, doesn't he, there in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. From their sins. So Joseph receives even a further explanation as to the nature of the salvation in which Jesus brings. Which is incredibly important because this is not what they expect. They expect a Savior. The Messiah is promised to come and be a Savior. But they're thinking a Savior from Rome, a Savior from oppression. A, a, a salvation like they experienced under the thumb of Pharaoh. And that he'll, he'll, he'll establish the Davidic ruler, will receive the blessings of living under God's covenant, and that's salvation. And it's very clear, if you get past Matthew 1 and read the rest of the, the Gospel of Matthew, or any of the Gospels for that matter, that you see that that's not, the, that's not the kind of salvation that Jesus is interested in. He's not interested in sitting on a throne in Jerusalem somewhere. He's interested in saving people from their sin. I mean, just as you read, you, you notice who he's, who is he spending his time with? Who's he attracting himself to? Well, sinners. It's always sinners, isn't it? And they're complaining. The the religious types are saying, well, he, he receives sinners. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. What's he doing? Why is he spending his time with them? Well, because he's come to save sinners. That's why he's with them. In fact, I think this is chiefly seen. Remember that wonderful story uh, when when Jesus is teaching the house and it's packed, it's full, there's no way in, it's surrounded with people and, and these guys bring their buddy who's paralyzed, four men bring their paralyzed friend and they climb up somehow on the roof, they dig a hole in the roof, they lower the man down on his mat and there he is just kind of hanging there midair right in front of Jesus. Now listen, it's obvious to all what this man needs. He's paralyzed, he doesn't walk, Jesus is a miracle healer, so it's, it's it's not confusing as to why they brought him. There he is, right in front of the miracle worker. Everyone understands what's going on. And Jesus looks at this man, and he says, I've got good news for you. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And he must have been thinking, what? And everyone else must be thinking, what? Because it's obvious to all, he's, he's not there to deal with his sins. He wants to walk again. And Jesus says, no, your real need is not your broken legs, but your broken relationship with God. Your real trouble is your sin, and I'm here to save you. And, and, and uh, th- this, this, is what, this is what we do with Jesus. We, we say, well, listen, I want this and I want that. Can you, can you, here's my need. Can you help me out here? And Jesus cares about all that. Jesus cares about your health. I have no doubt on that. Jesus cares about your marriage and your job, and he cares about your children. Jesus cares about your fears and your plans and your hopes and your dreams. Certainly, of course he does. But our biggest issue, our biggest trouble, my friends, is our sin. Our greatest need is forgiveness. It's salvation. And here's the good news, because the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Of course, this causes quite a stir, doesn't it? In announcing forgiveness to the paralyzed man, the Pharisees rightly conclude, wait a second, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right, Jesus never met this man. This man never done anything against Jesus unless he's God. And he then looks at the man and says, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, get up, walk, and go home. And the paralyzed man does, teaching all of us, if we have the eyes to see it, that the very one sitting in that room that day is none other than God himself who forgives sins. He has come to save from sins. You see, everybody, I think, has this idea that we're searching for God. We're out looking for God, and it's the exact opposite, isn't it? God is searching for us. Christmas is about God's rescue mission. Jesus came to rescue us, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from our rejection of him, rescue us from our sin. He's come to forgive us our guilt of our sin through his atoning blood. He's come to free us from the dominion of sin through his sanctifying spirit. He's come to remove from us one day the existence of sin through his victorious return. That's why we call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this is what, this, this is what explains that irritating quality to Christianity. You know, the, the exclusivity of Christianity or the narrowness that the world says, why are you Christians so narrow?" Right? Uh, have you not encountered this? People say, well, well listen, what, why, I'm happy for you. You have that faith. Why can't you let me have my faith? Why do you Christians always have to say your religion is the true religion? Why can't you agree that all religions are good and they all have kernels of truth in them and they're all kind of their own ways to the divine? Well, you know, the, and they'll say the, the, the world's religion is like a buffet. Okay? And no one eats everything on the buffet. At least you shouldn't, Right? You, you, so you go and you get something over here, and I'll take something over here, and then, well, you don't like that, you get that one over there, and you get it. Why, why do you Christians have to say your dish is the only dish that people should eat? Why is it all or nothing? Well, you, you can see the answer, can't you? Well, the answer is Christmas. Christmas. It's Christmas. Because all religions say, this is how you live to get to God. Here's the ritual. Here's the ethics. Here's how you find your way. And only Christianity comes and says, you can never find your way. You're far too needy for that. You need to be saved. It would be as if you were sick and you went to a doctor. And the doctor said, listen, it's nothing too serious. You just need to get some rest, drink some fluids, maybe get some sunshine. You'll be okay. You're not quite sure, so you go to another doctor. And the doctor says, listen. Listen. You're not, it's nothing serious. All you need is get some rest, drink some fluids, get some sunshine. You'll be okay in a couple of weeks. You, you go to a third doctor, he tells you the same thing. And all these doctors are saying, listen, you just need a little of this, a little of that, nothing too bad. But then you finally go to this last doctor. And he says, I, I have some terrible news. It is serious. In fact, it's terminal. You're going to die unless you let me perform surgery on you you you're, this is going to kill you now what do you say to that doctor well doctor why are you being so narrow you know well why do you have to say all the other doctors are wrong what's wrong with you why are you so bigoted you're a very bigoted doctor no you wouldn't say that at all you 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 would say maybe you're right maybe you're wrong I need to find this out but you wouldn't look at him and say well there's a very narrow doctor don't go to him you would say, okay, well, I want to understand. Maybe he's right. Maybe maybe it's true. It, is it, am I really okay? Do I just need to modify my behavior a little bit? Or is something seriously wrong with me, and I need to be saved? Well, friends, is there any evidence for that claim? <laughs> I mean, just look around. I mean... With all our advances in medicine and technology and philosophy and tra- travel and wealth and all the rest I mean, we're far more advanced. Why is the world in the state it is? Why are children do- still dying of starvation in 2018? Why is that happening? Why are there tyrants oppressing their people? Why are opioids destroying lives and leaving children without families? Why, why-, why are marriages continuing to fall apart? Why are children alienated from their parents? Why is, why is the world continue to be polluted and, and people continue to be oppressed? Why, is, why, why does it seem to me that everyone in America who has a grudge thinks the best idea is to go into a building full of people and open fire? Why? What's going on? Why? How do you answer that? Why? Well, the Bible has an answer, and it's called sin. My friends, there's something wrong with us. And I think, why is it not obvious by now, after millennia of trying to fix the problems ourselves, that we can't solve this problem? That the world is still a mess, and maybe you would even be willing to admit, yeah, my life is a bit of a mess too. Is there someone who can save us? Well, yeah, there is. His name's Jesus. You shall call him Jesus for he will save their people from their sins. Have you found anyone else? I, I, I mean, I don't know. Are there other saviors out there? It seems like this is the clear choice to me. Well, that raises the question how he saves. And We'll be brief. In fact, we don't even see it here in this passage. You'll have to read the rest of Matthew to get to that. But as the choir already announced to us, this... This, this, this Jesus went from the cradle to the cross, didn't he? And in Hebrews 9, we read, He has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus is the Savior by taking on the punishment for our sin on the cross. He, he was nailed to the cross to pay our debt. He took our place. God punished him instead of those who believe. And so, so why was he born? Why, why, why Christmas? So that he could live? No, he was doing just fine living before Christmas, right? And he announced it over and over again, before Abraham I was, for this reason I came into the world, and so forth. No, he wasn't born so he could live. He was born so that he could die. He was born so that he could die our death and pay our debt. And and, and so the story of Christmas, my friends, is is none of us has been good enough and, and none of us can be good enough and none of us need to be good enough as one pastor has shared because Jesus has died for our sin. Which leads to the last question for us this morning. Who? Who does he save? Well, I direct your attention once more to this angel there in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice he didn't say all people. He came to save his people. That raises the question, doesn't it? Who are his people? Well, his people are sinners. He himself would say the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is Lost, And so if you don't understand yourself as a sinner, if you think I'm a basically good person, and I'm going to stand on my own goodness before God. Let's be clear, you're, you're not one of his. Right? If you don't feel like you have any need for saving, right? If you maybe think I need a little help, but I certainly don't need saving, then you're not one of his people because he only comes as a savior. Now, I, I understand it's Christmas time and, and this maybe you think, okay, <laughs> this is a little too much for Christmas, isn't it? I mean, the cantata was lovely, and, and we, you know, we've got poinsettias, poinsettias, by the way, and uh, candles, and there's garlands everywhere, and, you know, Christmas is about children and, and angels, and, and, and Christmas is about, you know, uh, shepherds and eggnog and twinkling lights and ho-ho-hos and illuminating deer and figgy pudding, right? And that's what Christmas is about. And what's all this about? Savior and sin and all this. I just don't think It's true. I mean, I, 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 lo- I like the candles and the flowers as much as the next guy. I love it. We, do, we have it all over our house. But the joy of Christmas is not found in hanging stockings and eating sweets and ugly sweaters. The joy in Christmas is that God in his unbelievable kindness to us and unbelievable cost to himself has come to save his people from their sins. Christmas is about the gift of salvation. Have you received it? Have you opened that package? Not do you know the facts about Jesus. Not even do you mentally agree with everything I have said this morning. But have you committed yourself to him? Have you been saved from your sin? Have you bowed your knee to him in faith, saying, I am a sinner, and I need you to save me. I believe in you. I give myself to you. The Bible says that if we confess our, with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you received that gift? Or are you, in the hustle and bustle of life, just pushing him away? Like a story that James Merritt told several years ago, Dr. Leo Winters was awakened one morning at 1 a.m. There had been an accident, and a young boy was in the hospital. The hospital felt that he, this well-known surgeon, alone had the skill to bring this dying boy through surgery. And so Dr. Winters rushed out of bed, threw on his clothes, took off in his car. He decided to drive to downtown Chicago through a shortcut, a rather dangerous area. He felt the time was of the essence. He had to take the chance. So he slowed down at an intersection. A man wearing an old flannel shirt and a gray hat suddenly rushed from the shadows, opening the car door, grabbing the doctor, throwing him on the street there and screaming, I have to have your car. Well, it took Dr. Winters 45 minutes to find a phone and call a taxi. And By the time the taxi dropped him off at the hospital, more than an hour had passed. When he arrived, the nurses shook their heads and said, I'm sorry, doctor, you're too late. The boy died 15 minutes ago. You'll find his father down in the hall in the chapel. He's awfully confused. He can't understand why you never came. Well, Dr. Winters hurried down the hallway and opened the door of the chapel, and there in the front was the crumpled form of a weeping father wearing an old flannel shirt, clutching that same gray hat. He, too, had been in a hurry to get to the hospital and had taken this doctor's car. And in so doing, he pushed literally from his life the only one who could have saved his son. I think it's a picture of humanity. Humanity. Perhaps even especially in Christmas time, we are in such a hurry to go here and there and to do this and to do that, rushing after life. And at the same time, though he is so close to us, we are pushing away the only one that can save us. Maybe for one here today or even more, today would be the day you stop pushing and you start to surrender and believe. That would be my hope and our prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. We thank you that he has come to save us from our sins. May that cause great rejoicing in our heart for those of us who believe, those of us who belong to him. And for those of us, Father, perhaps a friend here today that maybe even knows all the facts about Jesus and yet has yet to receive... Him as her Savior, as His Savior, that you would even move them in faith, that they would even pray right now in their own heart Lord, I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against you. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. And I ask you to save me. I yield my life to you as my king. I place my faith in you as my Lord and receive your forgiveness. And Father, will you not work in the hearts of those who have yet to trust that they too might know Jesus as a savior. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen.